Hey there, everyone. It's your trusty host, Angelique here. Getting ready to head down to Fort Lauderdale in a couple weeks for the Privacy Salon. Excited to see some friendly faces there. Uh, If you're in town, shoot me a DM or flag me down at the event and let's catch up. You probably heard or read the phrase hot privacy summer somewhere, and it's trended on Twitter because the privacy news this summer has been relentless. We say that every summer. We complain about the Friday news dumps as journalists, but it honestly is heating up and the pace is insane. This week was no different. Fortunately, I had booked Mike Swift, a longtime privacy journalist, a California native and an all-around good guy, to talk about just that. We'd already recorded the podcast, and I'd sent the rough edits to my audio engineer when even more news broke. So I had to dial him back up early this morning. We'll get to that in a minute. First up, a brief rundown on the week's news. To hold myself account to keep it brief, I think I can record this within three minutes, maybe three minutes, ten seconds. Three minutes, nine seconds, okay? Chris, see Money Burns, as you're known. Please start my timer now. This week's big stories really indicate where we're at with privacy enforcement in the U.S. Huge names, significant allegations, and regulators that are not impressed. Snapchat reached a $35 million settlement in a class action out of Illinois. The suit claimed Snapchat's filters and lenses violated Illinois' Biometric Information Privacy Act, reports TechCrunch. Snapchat users in the state who use the filters between November 2015 to now can get a cut of the settlement, though it still needs final approval. The company claims the features don't collect biometric data that could be used to identify a person, the report states. The company said in a statement, quote, for example, lenses can be used to identify an eye or a nose as being part of a face, but cannot identify an eye or a nose as belonging to any specific person, end quote. Next up, an ex-Twitter exec came forward this week to say that under his tenure, the company had a number of cybersecurity issues and, quote, deliberately misled its board of directors about them, end quote. The 200-page disclosure was sent to Congress and government agencies in July. Further, the former head of security at Twitter, Peter Zatko, said the company has never been in compliance with the demands the FTC made during a 2011 settlement, which banned Twitter from, quote, misleading consumers about the extent to which it protects the security, privacy, and confidentiality of non-public consumer information, end quote, for the next 20 years. The allegation is that Twitter doesn't always delete a user's data once they've canceled their account. Next up, the NAI released a statement opposing the FTC's new rulemaking endeavor. It said it's concerned about the FTC's, quote, repeated use of the loaded term surveillance to describe even a established business practices that benefit consumers, small businesses, and a competitive marketplace. It also did say, however, it supports Congress's move to push federal privacy legislation. On the matter of FTC rulemaking, Commissioner Alvaro Bedoya tweeted earlier this week that you neither have to be an expert to send in comments on the FTC's endeavor to police commercial surveillance, nor do you need to answer all 95 questions the commission posed to the public. So take some hours or days of your life back on that one, y'all. Lastly, and we'll talk about this at the top of the show, Sephora reached a settlement with the California AG, Rob Bonta, the first settlement resulting from a CCPA enforcement action. The settlement requires Sephora to allow consumers to opt out of the sale of personal information, including via global privacy controls. It requires the company to clarify its online disclosures on selling personal information, to conform uh, its service provider agreements to the CCPA's requirements, and to provide reports to the AG relating to its sale of personal information. Before 
we get on to the show, just a reminder that I'm always interested in what you want to hear about. Thanks for listening so far. I appreciate you. I appreciate the notes and I appreciate the posts. Hit me up on Twitter DM or LinkedIn or shoot me an email, angelique at terratrue.com. I love hearing from you. If you like this show today, please help me keep spreading the word that I'm back on the podcasting beat. I'm working to reconnect with listeners of the last podcast after taking a couple years off. Any reviewing or social media posting is loved. Talk soon. Love ya. Okay. So um, we had actually recorded our podcast. I had sent first edits off to the sound engineer. We were ready to go. And then this big story broke. And I said, actually, Mike, I think we should uh, back up for a second and make sure we capture this. So big news yesterday. You were actually the first person that I saw tweeting about the news. And actually, you had given us a preview the day before saying big news coming out of California on the first CCPA enforcement action. What happened? Yeah, so there's just too much news going on in privacy, right? But what what, what happened yesterday was the uh, California Attorney General, Rob Bonta, um, basically reached a $1.2 million settlement with Sephora, the uh, beauty retailer, um, on allegations that uh, Sephora was telling people it wasn't selling their personal data when actually it was. And um, it's kind of notable. It's, it's the first uh, enforcement action that was actually brought under the new California Consumer Privacy Act, even though the law has been in effect for more than two years. But um, this is the first company that was uh, sort of issued a warning from the attorney general and then didn't act to fix the problem. And so that's why they got dinged. So it was an interesting day. Some, um, really tough talk from the attorney general. And, and I, I think he was kind of um, beyond just this action against Sephora. He was really trying to lay a marker down that uh, to you folks in Washington who want to preempt our power, you shouldn't do that because there's a lot of important work we can do. So, so I, I think it was kind of relevant on the, both of those levels. Yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly privacy Twitter uh, just exploded on the news as we knew it would. And I did see some quotes from Bonta saying, you know, the kid gloves are coming off, <laughs> yeah. uh, which, you know, that that's fight and speak in the privacy world. Um, interesting that it it could have opted to to do the right to cure and then instead took the settlement Um you know, 1.2 million for a company like Sephora, maybe the rationale was it's cheaper to just settle than to go through the processes of, of fixing. But then again, uh, they have to remedy the problem in order for, to not, for this not come back at them, right? They do. And uh, I reached out to them and um, they say we have already remedied the problem. We're in compliance. And they also say that we never sold data. And um, so this would have been, you know, a dispute that could have played out in court if they had that had happened, it certainly would have been much more expensive for Sephora than $1.2 million. So yeah, what you say is pro probably what happened. They may have just opted to, Hey, you know, it's cheaper to just settle and uh, you know um, and then just move forward. So, but it, it has to do with a dispute over the definition of what is a sale under the California privacy law. So it, 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 it's interesting for sure. 
Right. They're arguing that what we were doing doesn't actually constitute sale under the CCPA. And we know that there has been a whole lot of controversy as companies read the CCPA regulations on what sale actually means, right? It, correct. Yeah. I mean, it's very complicated. And, um, you know, today we are in the second day of a hearing uh, by the new California privacy regulator on their set of regulations, which are also going to be super complex and will no doubt lead to litigation. So, um, but I think, I think the timing probably wasn't um, a coincidence. You know, I think that one thing that um, Rob Bonta took pains to say yesterday was that there are going to be two privacy watchdogs on the block. And that's a good thing. Uh, the, the attorney general, as well as the new California privacy protection agency. So I think this was him really saying, look, we're not getting out of the game of privacy enforcement and then sending that broader message to Washington that Congress should not preempt uh, California's two privacy regulators. So um, I'm psyched to have you on. I always love to have people on who I can like talk at a high level and sometimes philosophically about sort of where we are in the privacy industry. Someone who's been watching this space for a really long time and not just watching it, but then digesting it and then articulating to, you know, the general public what they need to know about it. Um, So we've sort of been living a similar life for a while now. Um, talk me through a little bit, though, uh, how we know each other and uh, what your gig has been for the last decade or so now. Yeah, so um, I'm the um, the uh, global uh, uh, senior correspondent for MLEX Market Insight for uh, Digital Risk, we call it, which is really um, our focus on uh, privacy and data security. And, and we also write a little bit about content moderation, like the fights over Section 230 and data transfers and stuff like that, you know, fights between the, the EU and the U.S. on that. And we try to have a really global perspective. So um, we're a company that actually started in Brussels, and uh, I was the first uh, West Coast U.S. employee and uh, started doing uh, privacy for them really back for MLEX back in uh, 2012. So, and I think we met a few years after that. I was trying to think about that today, actually. I, I think it was in one of the, um, the, um, IAPP, you know, the annual global privacy summit. But at that time, it was kind of felt like this little DIY kind of, um, uh, group get together. It wasn't that many people. It was in, I think, the Washington Hilton Hotel. Um, uh, the place where Reagan was shot back in 1981. And, it, you know, it, it wasn't, it's really, it was a much smaller community than it is now for one thing. But one thing I always liked about covering privacy from the beginning was just that um, it seemed a lot more uh, diverse and open than other areas of the law. And, um, and, and I, I always really liked that because as a journalist, you always kind of feel like an outsider and all the time. And, and, um, you know, I never felt like people were looking down their nose at me in the privacy world the way I did, like in the antitrust world or, or even just covering big tech. I know that's so funny. And I wonder if I've always said that the privacy community has always been, you know, to me and you both, it sounds like so kind and very willing to like explain and to take time and to, you know, mentor a little bit or, whatever, take a poor journalist call. Um, and I've really been doing privacy basically like, you know, I did, um, 
small town newspapers for a little bit out of college, but I've been doing this for so long. I don't have a lot to compare it to in terms of other industries. So it's interesting to hear you say, um, antitrust as a, as a comparison. Um, so having been in the space for so long, and I think you're right. I think I have this memory of finally putting a face to the name, um, at some, you know, nighttime IPP event, like in a dark room where we were networking or something. Mm-hmm. And it was like, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Mike. Okay. Yep. Um, so what's kept you around for this long? I mean, I know you said, um, you know, you don't have to feel like so much of an outsider and it's a kind of a kind place to work, but, um, beyond that. Yeah. You know, I, I really feel like, um, uh, you know, privacy data protection is really the civil rights issue of the 21st century. And it seems to be more and more true. You know, I, I have a name, Mike Swift, but I sometimes wonder if, um, my more important identity is like my Android advertising ID or, um, you know, the various databases that, uh, you know, identify me and, you know, to determine your credit score and a million other identifiers and kind of set your place in society. And, and, you know, I think we're in a struggle now between who's going to control this data. Is it going to be companies or individuals? And, and I find that really compelling to cover. And that's, I, I think, something that hasn't really been determined yet. And, and it's a very exciting time right now. So I, I have no, I, no plans to go anywhere anytime soon. Uh, your, your readership thanks you for that. But um, who do you think, I, I, I often uh, wonder what the perception is besides my own, because sometimes I'm, even though I'm completely not like a privacy attorney or even a privacy practitioner, I am sort of like in the weeds on this. And um, when you said, you know, who's going to win in terms of like who gets to control the data, do you feel, obviously I would say to date, it's been like the, you know, big tech has sort of won that battle um, Mm -hmm. sort of surreptitiously over time. Um, You know, when we all signed up for Facebook, we didn't quite understand uh, what was going to happen with all of our data after that and um, how many decisions would be based on those things that we thought we were sharing with our college buddies or whatever. But now that we're seeing, you know, hearings in Congress and we're seeing the FTC say, hey, we want to create some rules on this. Do you think that the changes we're seeing are because of a shift in consumer like attitudes and realizations or are is the average consumer pretty like still mostly in the dark about this stuff? I think people are a lot less in the dark. I mean, I, I don't know. I you know, my sort of turning point moment was uh Cambridge Analytica back in 2018 and and you know, I I think I think everything has changed since then. That's kind of the fulcrum I think that you know, I think of as sort of the before and after times. And, and, um, you know, back when I started doing this, like my family, um, uh, my wife, you know, no, they were had no interest in <laughs> any of this stuff. And, and now I find, you know, family gatherings, people actually are like interested in what I do and, and want to know about it. And I, I just think that it's resonating much more broadly, uh, uh, beyond just our, our wonky world, right? That we share and, and people are really starting to care about and grasp how important it is. Yeah. I think so too. I mean, we always used to joke about how hard it was to go to like cocktail parties, like if, if it was not in our industry, cocktail parties or family gatherings or whatever. And, uh, always having to have this elevator pitch ready when someone asks what you do and <laughs> right. like, 
I refined it over the years many, many times. There were many iterations of that, depending on what was happening in the news. You know, like after Cambridge Analytica, you could kind of be like, well, you know, all that stuff that happened with Facebook that kind of made people mad. It's like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> which is nice. It sort of validates your existence a little bit because it's like, yep. before it just seemed like you're doing something so obscure and unimportant. Like, I've never even heard of that, so it can't be that big. But uh, right, at right, least people right. can kind of connect some dots now. Uh-huh. How would you describe where we're at now um, in terms of the enforcement landscape? Obviously, when the GDPR came down, um, people got real excited that there were going to be some pretty massive fines. And um, I think we expected to see fireworks and explosions sooner than we did. We're seeing GDPR fines kind of trickle in. Um, we know the FTC is enforcing increasingly, it seems, on privacy. How would you kind of characterize that landscape right now? Well, I've always said that, you know, uh, the U.S. doesn't have as, as many rules, but it has lots of enforcement. And, you know, the, the Europe always has since 2018 has had the rules. And as you said, we're seeing these little um, uh, a lot of them are kind of ticky tack fines. Uh, we're still, you know, we, we haven't seen anything remotely on the level of the five billion dollar penalty that Facebook paid uh, in 2020. And um, um, on the other hand, um you know, we actually track these at MLEX. We, we, every single one. And, um, you know, I, I really wonder if, um, even though so many of these, uh, fines are so small that it's not typically news, at least not mainstream news, but I, but there are so many recipients of these penalties now that I wonder if it's having even more effect than, you know, the big, you know, bonanza penalty that Facebook paid. So it's hard to know, you know, I, I guess we'll see. Um, but, uh, um, it, it does seem that we're also going to see some bigger penalties for us tech companies in the next year or so, I think. So, and, uh, but stay tuned. Yeah. And would you, is that a direct result of con? I don't think it's con so much. I mean, con came as really an antitrust person. Um, but I think that, um, clearly the Biden administration did want somebody who was willing to, uh, really do a reset on the relationship between the U.S. government and Silicon Valley. And she is that certainly. Um, I, I sense that she's coming around much more to, um, the point of view that, uh, privacy is not just an input for an antitrust investigation, but something very important in its own right. And, uh, Alvaro Badar, Badoya, the new, the newest, um, FTC commissioner seems really impressive to me. Um, I've heard that, uh, within the, the FTC, he's really, um, uh, taking pains to really talk to everybody. And, and he's really the kind of the first you know, privacy first guy to be a commissioner. And I think that's pretty exciting for privacy. Um, and, and, uh, and so we'll see what happens, but, uh, I, you know, I think the FTC is going to be very active in this space. Yeah. I'm curious to see the impact Bedoya has because he does have that deep expertise. And he's also, as you said, uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to, to hang with him a few times in DC, um, based on events he was putting on at Georgetown law, which is where I really got to know him. And he's such a thoughtful, charismatic, um, like bring together to make up a phrase. He's really good at convening groups that don't necessarily speak the same language or have the same, um, wants or or uh, needs or desires and, and facilitating conversation. So, you know, we've kind of heard these, um, you always hear it, I guess, from FTC staff, that, you know, FTC staff is unhappy. And when Khan yep. came in, it really like 
just triggered everything and it started imploding and now Phillips is resigning. And um, so it'll be interesting to see the impact that Bedoya has on what sounds like maybe a kind of troubled time at the FTC or what's your take on that? Is it just the, the rumor mill? No, it's not just the rumor mill. We did a big investigative piece uh, in May, I think it was, where we spent several months uh, talking to uh, more than 30 current and former FTC staffers. And there was just a lot of angst uh, about Khan's leadership. Um, people felt really ignored uh, for years. They felt like um, the FTC had always been a very non-political place. And uh, Khan and her chief of staff, Jen Howard, had come in and really um, had little respect uh, for the existing uh, staff who had been there for a long time. And I think Bedoya has really um, moderated that. I've really heard high praise for him from staffers in the last month or so about he's really taking all this time to like just go and have coffee with people, which I think is super important. And because the thing is, it's like, you know, I, I hate to make a half-assed sports analogy, but, but you know, Khan kind of you inherit the team. You, you, it's hard to fire the players if you're a new coach coming in you, and you really need to get them to buy in. And that most certainly was not happening uh, for the first year of Khan's leadership. I think things are a little bit better now, but not completely. So, but I think Bedoya can really help her uh, to get, get to where she needs to be. Do you have a sense of her? I, I've never met with her or spoken with her. I know she's young. Like, is it that she came in with sort of like, she just came in like a bull in a china shop or is it like a personality thing? Do we know? I think it's a little bit of both. I, you know, I, I've, um, I can't claim to know her. Uh, I remember back a few years ago, she and Tim Wu came to Stanford. I think it was in 2019. And we had to fight with our editor to um, get him to let us go cover Lena Khan and Tim Wu and, you know, to actually just rub elbows with them. And we just had a feeling like both of them were going to be important. And she just came across at that meeting as being, um, you know, a little bit distant, a very shy. I've heard she's a very nice person um, and, and really pleasant to be around. But um, I, you know, what I've heard and I, this, I, this is all hearsay. It's not my personal experience, so I can't claim that it is. But that, um, you know, she just is a kind of a thought person and, and maybe she's not as strong on personal relationships. And, and she doesn't mean to come across that way, but sometimes she does. And but I think, you know, um, some of the people she's hired at the staff level, like Sam Levine, who's the, the chief of the director of the Bureau of Consumer Protection, uh, is well thought of and, and is a very sensitive guy and is trying to uh, work more directly with the staff. And, you know, ultimately, you know, maybe their feeling was there was some dead wood and you needed, uh, you know, a, a re-energizing re of the team there. That takes time, though. And and uh, and uh, so so we'll see what happens. And we, we don't know how long Khan is actually going to have as the chair, obviously. Right. That's uh, bigger forces at play in that one. So we'll see. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like you can be a very smart person. It doesn't always translate into strong leadership skills, you know, but maybe with that right. second and third in command um, or at least, you know, folks that she's working with can kind of, you know, act as a solve for some of those early wounds, perhaps. Yep. Yep. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what you're working on now and some of the cases that you're following. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are some really interesting cases out there now. Um, one thing that we're seeing is that um, state attorneys general are really getting much more aggressive and, and I think interested in privacy and not just antitrust. So um, there's a trial coming up uh, theoretically on uh, October 21st. Fourth, between um, the Arizona Attorney General and Google over whether uh, Google Google uh, deceived Android users by continuing to collect location uh, data uh, after they had toggled off location history on an Android phone. And um, there are now four other states that have have kind of follow on complaints like that. And uh, uh, the bellwether, I guess, will be the Arizona case. I think that's super interesting. Um, uh, Texas uh, is has uh, kind of double-barreled uh, their complaint against Google and, and that they've added on a claim that uh, Google's Chrome incognito private browsing mode continues to harvest data, you know, even in what people think is uh, private mode when it's really not, and maybe is even less private than regular Chrome. And, um, so that you have all those cases. And, you know, now we're getting to the point where, um, some of the big, um, private class action cases out here in San Francisco are kind of reaching the critical point and could go to trial next year. So I think we could see 2023 is just a huge year for news in privacy and could really maybe reset the bar on the industry to some degree. You know, that remains to be seen, but certainly the possibility exists for that to happen. How tough is it uh, sometimes to get access to the people you need uh, as sources? Um, And as a follow on to that, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the frustration you had today uh, trying to (laughs) live life as a privacy reporter. It's not as easy as everyone thinks. No, it's not. Um, so today I, I uh, kind of had a life moment in that I um, uh, was uh, at a hearing on um, a class action lawsuit against Google over its real-time bidding platform. So this is the ad platform that matches um, uh, individuals with um, you know ads that Google thinks they'd like to see and based on the data that Google has about them. And um, uh, if the, the, the essence of this suit is that Google is not telling the truth when it says it never sells uh, people's personal information. And this was a hearing uh, in front of a magistrate judge in San Jose. I'm actually uh, doing this from the uh, attorney's lounge in the San Jose courthouse. Don't don't tell anyone I'm not an attorney. Live from but, the um, scene, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, Basically, um, you know, I made the trip down here to San Jose and I'm all set to cover this hearing and I'm waiting for it to start. And the judge says, OK, I'm going to seal the courtroom and because this is uh, involving proprietary information that Google says can't be public. And um, I was, you know, frankly, I was just I was just pissed off because I made the trip all the way down here. There's no hint that this thing was going to be sealed. So I raised my hand. Uh, from the gallery. I've never done this before. And the judge, Judge, uh, um, Judge Virginia DeMarchi recognized me. And I said, Judge, you can't seal this. This is, uh, there's a, you know, high level of public interest. I'm a journalist. This is, you know, maybe Google's most basic privacy promise, which is at issue in this case. And she said, well, I don't think you understand the difference between, uh, a dispositive motion and a just a motion on discovery you know which was i think think because i do understand the difference between those two and and um i said i do understand the difference between those judge but i 
I, 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 I lost essentially very quickly and was ejected from the courtroom. So, so, um, but I think the lawyers found it very entertaining that, that a sure. journalist would. Because <laughs> it's not even like she was like, does anyone have any concern? Like you were just like, hey, Mike here, uh, call on me. I don't even think I would have <laughs> the balls, frankly, to do it. Uh, if I hadn't been really mad, I wouldn't have. <laughs> I, I, I was surprised I had the courage, but I was like, I'm, I'm just going to be so mad at myself if I don't speak up. I have to try. And, um, you know, I, I think I did it in a respectful way, but, you know, more in a more serious note, um, one thing I've noticed is that um, magistrate judges in particular who don't have a lifetime appointment um, are often quite frequently seem to be granting companies requests to seal entire hearings. And, you know, I understand that, um, you know, there may be proprietary information that, uh, the lawyers have to find a way to talk around or talk about it in a veiled way, or, you know, maybe the parties look at it on a monitor that the gallery can't see. But I think when you start closing, uh, the federal courtroom, federal courtrooms to all wit, all audiences, I, I really have a problem with that. And, um, you rarely see a district judge with a lifetime appointment do it, but we're seeing a number of the magistrate judges doing that with increasing frequency here. And I, I think it's really a concern. I think it's wrong. Um, this is a public court. It's the people's court and it, and it shouldn't be happening. And, and so, you know, I'm getting angry now talking about it. We so, love it. No, so, we want, we need, so, we, we love you know. when people get fired up on the show. Um, yeah, what, yeah, so. what is the, t- talk me through naively, <clears throat> why, and what's the interest of a magistrate judge in allowing tech companies to keep it behind closed doors? Well, the companies are making, um, the argument that that, that um, this is proprietary information that, that this is a Google's proprietary information. I don't know what it is because it was sealed, so I, I had no basis to judge how 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 uh, how serious how important this data is. But you know, obviously, we are at the heart here of Google's uh, business model, which is not about search; it's about advertising, and that's where Google's money comes from. And, um, you know, this is tens of billions of dollars a year. And so that's why I, uh, this is kind of getting at the secret sauce of how they, they couple up uh, people who are likely to be interested in an ad. And that's what ad makes uh, targeted advertising so valuable. So totally. Um, well, I understand what, why Google would want to, but uh, is the magistrate judge, like, how are they appointed? Like, do tech companies have influence on whether a judge would be like, uh, promoted to continue being a judge or someday get life. Like what's the, what's, what's in it for the magistrate judge to say, okay, yes, uh, I'm going to allow this. You know, that's a great question. And and I, I, I don't really know the answer. I, I just noticed that, um, it's, it's much more rare in my experience for a full district judge with a lifetime appointment to do, to agree to a, complete ban on any audience in the courtroom. It, it just doesn't seem to happen as frequently. And, um, you know, magistrate judge has seven years. There are, um, uh, they're appointed by a vote of the other district judges in, in the, the district. I, I just don't think they have the same, you know, um, sense of, uh, I don't know, entitlement. I don't know, uh, hmm. personal power. I don't know. Um, I see. but, but, um, okay. you know, uh, uh, when you see some district judges, they really have no trouble throwing their weight around against these companies. And, and it's rarely the same. 
uh, vibe with magistrate judges, I noticed. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I can't say that I've ever seen a hearing play out in front of a judge before. So I just was trying to pick out <clears throat> what's really going on there. I'd actually love to explore yeah. that topic a little more deeply. Sure. Curious on your take, how do you feel about the issue? Like, do you understand where the CPPA is coming from? Are you more in favor of passing something federal? What, what are your, what's your take? Oh, another great question. Um, so I, you know, I, um, I, I'm a native Californian. I'm very proud of that. I also spent time in Maine. So I lived there for some time. So we have that in common, yeah. but, uh, you know, back in, um, uh, back when California passed the first law in 2018, and then uh, we had a ballot initiative in 2020, um, you know, we had something like 6 million Californians who actually voted for this law. And, you know, it, it's really hard for me to uh, justify that uh, elected officials should be able to take away the vote of the people uh, by by Californians, because it, it wasn't just the California legislature that did this. It was us. The voters of California. And, and so, um, I think, um, you know, everyone from Nancy Pelosi on down is going to have a hard time, uh, justifying that to the voters here. And, um, so, you know, we'll see how that goes, but I, I don't think, think it's really an ego thing so much for, um, the CPPA people. Um, I know, you know, Ashkan Sultani, you must know him and, and Jennifer Urban, I've come to know a little bit, who's the chair of the, uh, the, the California Privacy Protection Agency board. And, you know, these are, um, my sense of both Jennifer and Ashkan are they are intensely principled people whose life work is privacy and um they don't want to see uh they don't want to see this thing that they're trying to build which is really important uh defanged in any way and um they're aware of the power of the power that they're up against in in the technology the tech industry and and so i can understand where they're coming from i i do think about the people in the other the 45 other states that don't have any privacy law though and and who's going to protect them? You know, California does have these rights, but, uh, you know, what about the people of, you know, Maine, for example, um, you know, and don't they deserve a federal privacy law too? And yeah. the answer is yes. So um, it's really hard to know what's right here. It's really feels like splitting, you know, Solomon splitting the baby. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's hard to know what's right. I know. I mean, I can understand that there was so much important work that California did. And as a journalist, it kept me very busy for, you know, three to four years between crafting CCPA and then, you know, and then CPRA dropping. Um, so I get it. But I do feel, you know, I'm over here in Maine right now, actually, you know, camped out at mom's house. And I'm like yelling to you to the at the other coast, like, what's it like? Like, you know, like, <laughs> like to have rights. Um, but I feel you. I just think it's interesting because it's heating up. Like I saw a Twitter, like it looked almost like a campaign ad. Um, and it was like Oshkan's face. And it was like this kind of like poster from the CPPA, you know, this enforcement agency being like, we're not going to, you know, the gist of it was like, we're not going to let AAD PPA like undo the good work we did, like say no, you know? And I was like, wow, like things are, yep. you know, it's interesting to see an enforcement agency sort of campaigning like that. Um, but as yep. you said, if it's your life work and if you're, you know, a very principled person, then, you know, that's the move, I suppose. Ashcan's not somebody I would pick a fight with over privacy. That's for sure. No, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, I don't know what sort of juice they have with Nancy Pelosi or with you know, um, yeah, the with Gavin Newsom. Although I I did notice that Newsom 
was one of the first to write a letter uh, supporting them. And, and that I thought was significant. Um, we haven't really seen Pelosi take a public position, but the fact that both the California attorney general and the governor did immediately and took a quite a strong stance on that, uh, I thought was note, note, noteworthy. And um, I interviewed uh, Rob Bonta, the new attorney general here, um, after he took office. And uh, he convinced me that privacy is going to be really important for him. And uh, he's not going to let the ball drop. Um, it was really Kamala Harris who started the ball rolling, you know, 10 years ago and, and the, the California attorney general becoming a player in privacy. And, and so um, it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. You know, I, I think it's one one example of how our field of privacy has become important. It's now becoming an important political issue. We never could have imagined that, you know, even five years ago. And, um, and, and now it is. And I think it's going to become even bigger going forward. So stay tuned. Buckle up. I know. And that's sort of what I feel like it must be at least partly inspired by what we were talking about by this kind of like consumer um, awakening, you know, that um, that if politicians are basing at least part of their platform on it, you know, it has to be a reflection of what their constituency is saying matters to them in some way, you know, which is sort of interesting to see that transformation take place from innocuous issue that privacy nerds care about to something that voters are saying, what are you going to do mm -hmm. for us, you know? Right, right. Well, we're starting to see companies now that are have their business model is based on privacy, like DuckDuckGo. And when I hear ads everywhere now in airports, I see ads for DuckDuckGo talking with the word privacy there. And, you know, I just think that that is going to have a collective impact on the psyche of Americans because – you know, we're all creatures of advertising when you come right down to it, right? And, and you know, there are people who see those ads and they're like, oh, I guess privacy is important. I should care. And they start to care. And then politicians start to care. So, you know, I, I think that we can never go back to where it was a few years ago. And I, I think we're just going to continue down this road where um, people become more educated about how their data is used and the value of it. Yeah, for sure. Um what do you think is going to happen? I'm I'm going to let you go momentarily, but what do you think is going to happen with this whole mess regarding data transfers? We know that, you know, Schrems, uh, Max Schrems is on the case whenever there's any type of data transfer agreement made between EU and U.S. Um, we've seen, you know, two frameworks be struck down. We're trying to come up with, a, with the next solution. Um, companies are kind of you know, worried in the meantime, what's your take on how this gets sorted? Isn't Trems just going to come after whatever it is that we come up with? Because Europe's still not going to be satisfied with what we do on national security in the U.S., right? Yeah, probably not. Although, you know, you could argue that's a little hypocritical given like the UK is, you know, one of the five eyes and, you know, is just as involved in intelligence gathering. And, um, so we'll see. I mean, uh, I think the thing we're waiting for now is the executive order to come down from Biden on, on how there will be, um, you know, the, the, like an ombudsman, but an ombudsman with real power if there are privacy violations by U.S. intelligence agencies. And, um, I don't know what's taking so long with that. You know, I keep seeing other media organizations saying, Oh, it'll happen by June. And then soon it's July. And, uh, I keep seeing reporting that this is going to happen and it never seems to drop. So, uh, I don't really have much insight into what's going on there. Maybe there's a battle with the intelligence communities or, 
you know, maybe just, um, it hasn't been enough of a priority, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, that's what we're really waiting for, for, for that executive order to drop. And I think that'll really give us some clarity on where things go, but, um, it does seem like, um, you know, meta platforms and Facebook in particular is really worried that, um, that, you know, that there could be some sort of interruption in data flows. I just don't see how that's could ever happen. It would be so disruptive of business that people would just not accept it, I think. And, and so there, it's like, there has to be a solution to this issue. And, uh, we just, you know, we're just not sure what it is yet. And we just don't, none of us want to see a Schrems three case. That's I know. Sure. Well, and I have suggested to folks like, listen, just get Schrems in a room with the people who matter. <laughs> Biden, you know, whoever else and let, and just ask him, what would you accept? And then do that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> because otherwise we're just going to be writing about, Oh, is privacy shield three coming down? Oh, it's coming down. Yep. And it's down. <laughs> We've seen this story many times before. It's the waiting of Godot of exactly. international uh, data transfers. So who knows? Um, lastly, what do you think about this FTC rulemaking initiative? Um, you know, it seems sort of interesting given that we are arguably closer than ever when it comes to coming up with at least the bones for either the ADPPA or what follows it. You know, we've made progress there. Um, the FTC is is carving out this really broad, uh, broadly scoped uh, question and answer period and, and, and trying to determine how to rule make and what about. Do you think um, it's simply kind of putting Congress's feet to the fire saying, hey, you know, if y'all aren't going to be able to overcome your differences, we're going to start moving on this. Is it a worthy initiative or is it just going to get killed in the end? Well, I mean, this has been on the uh, minds of people at the FTC for a long time. I mean, they signaled at the end of last year they were going to go forward with this. Um, I know from internal conversations with people there that they were really um, waiting for uh, Bedoya to get on board. Um, they were really hoping that they could get Christine Wilson to vote for it. Ultimately, they couldn't. So it became a party line vote. Um, you know, and then the question is, how broadly do you do rulemaking? Do you do what like Noah Phillips wanted, where you just focus it on data security? Or do you go broader than that? And um, I'm not sure how much they think that they can really affect Congress. I, I think um, they don't feel that big. I, I, I doubt that they uh, went, decided to go forward now with the hope of really goading Congress into doing something, although Congress certainly took note when they announced it. So maybe it will have some effect. Um, I don't know. But what I'm hearing from people in industry is that they feel like this very fragile uh, compromise they did between private right of action and state preemption in the ADPPA has really fractured so much now that they're not sure it's workable. So I am really um, skeptical that Congress is going to pass that bill this year. And then after an election, who knows what's going to happen? So that makes me think that, um, you know, maybe the FTC rulemaking and the, the seat, the California process or what survives, you know, um, maybe we won't get, you know, maybe this federal law is really just a tease and it, it never gets through. I, I think there's a still a significant possibility that's going to happen. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, it's just, American politics has become so stigmatized politically and, and so unpredictable that, you know, I just, it's just, 
if I said I knew what was going to happen, I'd be lying. That's for sure. Yeah. So. And I, I mean, at least now, you know, when Trump was in office, we, I feel like I didn't even discuss a single issue for, for four <laughs> years. It was just reacting to something crazy he said. Exactly. And if he comes back, like we can forget, we can all forget this. Like, we're just going to go back to like, he said what? Oh God. You know? Yeah. 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 